You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Right, so excited to dive into this week's episode and talk about essentially this idea of plotting your escape. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. It's a beautiful day here in Richmond, right? It's the end of February. We're almost out of the winter doldrums, if you will. I think it's going to be 60 degrees and sunny today. Can't beat that. Well, I have 30 something odd years to tell me that uh, winter isn't over yet. Uh, there, was, <laughs> It's going to come back. It's going to get you. You can't count on it. Virginia weather. Very, very tricky. But today, you're right. I mean, it is the perfect day outside. And to celebrate such a perfect day, we are going to make probably my new favorite meal of all time. And it's funny, Brad, because this is a meal that you had been telling me about for quite literally the last 18 months. And it sounded good, but I just never went to the trouble of making it until we went over to your house and Laura made it for us. And this is chicken shawarma, one of the meals that was on this kind of $2 per person per meal list. Dude, it is my favorite meal of all time. And because we enjoyed it so much, Danny asked Laura for the recipe. We've made it at our house like three times and I have been absolutely blown away. I could eat it forever and I cannot believe how inexpensive it is. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, that's probably in my top five recipes that that Laura makes. I mean, maybe number one, honestly, Jonathan, it's just so unbelievably good. That's amazing. You've had it that many times. I mean, you were just at our house a couple of weeks ago. I would eat it every single day for lunch. I mean, we were recently in Greece, right? For Chautauqua back in October. And at the time I had a lot of the, the Greek food and it was very good. But honestly, this, this feels like something that you could get like at, at, as a cart food or as a staple in Greece. It just reminds me of that. It's like a gyro. It's, it is probably the best thing that I have ever had. And yeah, like you said, we, we've had it three times over the last couple of weeks. That's cool. And yeah, it definitely is very expensive. I think that's one that Laura has not drafted up for the Choose If I Vault. And actually, now that since we talked about her getting fired last week, she can get back to creating these recipes and putting them in the vault. So this, I guarantee, will be the next one that we put in there. But I'm pretty sure it comes in at about $2 per person per meal. I, I know if you use the non bread and we buy it from Trader Joe's, I think you can get four pieces of bread in, in one package and it's only a couple bucks. So it's probably maybe. 75 cents per per piece or thereabouts. But it, certainly if you didn't use the non, it's well, well under the $2 per person per meal. And, you know, this actually ties to something that Wendy did when for her family, she was actually one of her goals. So when she decided to actually get their budget under control and try to essentially make up for some of the income that she was going to be losing when she walked away from her job that was becoming increasingly toxic, she had a pretty big deficit that she had to come back from. And one of her big targets as a large family was tackling the food bill. And I know in her case, what they did is they actually looked online and they did the Aldi challenge, right? And and while I love Aldi's and I love the idea of an Aldi's challenge, I think the larger point is to be intentional with your cost per serving. And many of us have no idea what our actual cost per serving is. In fact, <laughs> 
many of us take for granted that the cost per serving is going to be 15 to $20 per serving per person per meal. It's just many of us have no idea what our life actually costs. And even more specifically, what we're actually spending on food. We may have this idea that it's this tiny little line item in our budget, but when you go to track it, man, it engulfs probably 30, 40, maybe in some cases up to 50% of our living expenses. If you can focus on that, if you can get it under control, if you can apply a little intentionality, you can save thousands of dollars if not each month, like in the case of Wendy, certainly over the course of a year. Very, very powerful to be focusing on this. And I think the real key is that it it can't just be cheap. It has to be good. That is really the bedrock principle, right? Like if you're making something that's cheap, we all know you can have pasta and sauce or pasta and butter every single meal, but yeah, that's not really going to light you up all that much when it comes time to the uh, 21st meal of the week. But if it's something that you actually look forward to and it's really inexpensive, well, then that's a double benefit. It's interesting, Jonathan. We actually have changed something up in our breakfast menu here at the Barrett household. So Laura has been making this smoothie for a couple weeks, and I've just kind of been doing my own thing, which normally is like a Quest protein bar, which is good. And I guess it fills me up a little bit. But I mean, those things are expensive. And I've had in the back of my mind, like, paying $2 for a stupid protein bar is a little egregious. And when it's not something that I overly look forward to every morning, and then I have to supplement it with, I usually have cauliflower or carrots or there something there. Cauliflower and carrots for breakfast? I do. I do. Is that weird? Is that really weird? I, no, 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 it's great. It's, oh, you're making it's better. It's okay. You can say yes. You can say yes. <laughs> you're making better choices than I am. <laughs> you're making a good choice, Brad Barrett. You're making a good choice. <laughs> Thank you. So anyway, I decided to have one of these smoothies about two weeks ago, and I love it. It fills me up until easily lunch, if not more. I mean, honestly, like I don't need to eat at noon or one, but I I just do out of kind of uh, societal obligation. But I am full and I look forward to this thing every single morning and not to mention it costs well less. I haven't priced out exactly because I do put some protein powder in there that that maybe uh, kicks up the cost per unit a little bit, but it's well, well, well under $2 for that entire smoothie. It's probably closer to a dollar or dollar and a quarter thereabouts. But I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, to cut my cost in half of every single breakfast, to have something I look forward to. And also not for nothing, but decision fatigue. Every morning I would come down and be like, oh, do I really want my protein bar again? Is there something else? Should I make eggs? Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't have that anymore. I look forward to my smoothie every morning and I come down and I prepare the thing. So I don't have that decision fatigue building into my day from 7 or 8 a.m. So yeah, lots and lots of benefits there. And Brad, I think some people struggle to make the connection and may in their own mind say, well, is this, is this a personal finance show or is this a, a health show? And, and in my mind, like very intentionally, this is a life optimization show because you, you really can't separate these out. I mean, you were talking about decision fatigue there and what we've ultimately are trying to achieve with this. We're trying to build enough space in our life that we can actually think about the things that really matter to us. And in many cases, you know, at some point, when you're in this hair on fire situation, your paycheck to paycheck, or maybe your paycheck to paycheck, if you're lucky, sometimes you're using a credit card to bridge the gap. Frankly, you're, you're in a perpetual state of crisis. You have low level stress, you know, kind of hanging out over your back shoulder all the time. If we can remove that, if we can get to the place where we're actually making forward progress in a very short amount of time, you're able to have space. And when you have space, you start prioritizing that space on things that actually matter to you things that you value. And in many cases, that is going to be your health. Diet is going to be related to that. Mindfulness is going to be related to that. And and we know 
that the best medicine out there is preventative, right? It is living a healthy lifestyle. And there's two aspects of that. There's input. What are you fueling your body with? And then expenditures. What are your exercise routines? What are your habits? Mindfulness is the other piece of this. You know, it's these three different aspects. Hopefully, you know, over time, we kind of try to bridge the gap here. We try to give for ourselves and for other people as many tools as possible to build that space. Then second and third, identify what are we going to do with that space to drive ourselves to a better future? And that's why I love kind of weaving the thread and not spending all of our time inside the, you know, IRS tax code, but actually taking a step back and saying, what is this for? Yeah. And it's easy to say, oh, this is a personal finance show, right? And let's talk about that a hundred percent of the time. But life is so much more than that. I mean, honestly, the way I look at personal finance is once you get it down, once you have the basic set and you have everything on autopilot, that's the easy part. It's the getting your brain right, getting your mindset right, getting your health right, getting your relationships and your community. So they're integral parts of your day. That's what matters to me. So Jonathan, we've used the phrase here, aggregation of marginal gains, and it's just getting a little bit better. And I notice even just in my own life, I try to find places where, okay, things are great. Obviously I have this wonderful life, but there are still many, many things that I fall down on. And one of them recently, even though I I can't believe I'm saying these words, my phone usage has become a problem for me. I think I'm probably still good at this. I know. I know. (laughs) I mean, in all honesty, I think I'm still well under like the average phone user, but for me, it's become an issue. It's become, okay, I'm sitting there. I have nothing to do. Unlock the phone and click Google or click Facebook or click my Gmail or see what's there. It just became so habitual. I just don't like that feeling. You know, it's bad when you come to the end of that and then you just start over. You're like, well, maybe there's something new on Google. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm reading this book called Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. And to your point about just coming back to the beginning, they talk about these infinity pools where basically there's just never ending content. And these guys worked for, I think, Google and YouTube. So they know a lot about that. And, and reading this book made me realize something's got to change. So what I did was I didn't uninstall all these apps on my phone, which is kind of what they actually recommend, but I took them off my first two like home screens. So I have to make a real effort to go into my entire list of apps, scroll through them and find the thing. So it's not just unlock and mindlessly press a button. So I put that little bit of space between that stimulus and response. Because normally I would just unlock, click. Now I've got to think about it. So I've noticed just anecdotally in the last week, this has really helped me and helped not only my phone usage, but my mindset a little bit. So I think it's on the right track and I'll certainly, you know, keep you updated, Jonathan, keep the audience updated. It's so funny. I'm actually working on something as well. I've been reading this book by James Clear, Atomic Habits, and I am forcing myself to adopt certain habits. And so, you know, kind of as my claim to fame, I have worked out four days a week every single week since the beginning of the year. I have not missed one of those workouts since the beginning of the year. And over time, it's just what you do, you know, and and I'm getting very close to achieving this and feeling like this is now a lifestyle factor. And that's, um, you know, it's kind of cool. You get this space. What are you going to do with the space? You're going to start optimizing other aspects of your life. For me, it was building positive habits. For you currently, it's mindfulness. It's not always the same thing, right? Life happens in chapters and there's different things that you're focusing on at different times. But just like with your finances, I'm going to spoil all of the financial independence community right now. I'm just going to end it. You'll never need to listen to another episode again. Just save 50% of your income and you're going to be good to go. You're done. You don't need to learn anything else. Just save 50% of your income 
and you're good to go. All right, we can all go home. We don't need to learn anything else. You're invincible. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm being facetious. But the key here is that once you get something locked down, you figure it out, you can then start focusing on other aspects of your life. And what we're trying to do is in our own lives, selfishly, we're trying to identify the tools that will allow us to achieve that. We're trying to set and forget it so it's just in place and then move on to something else. And periodically, you slip backwards a little bit and you have to come back to address, but you're not always focusing on all these different things. You're you're taking stands, you're doing heavy, deep work on these different areas, you're getting something in place, and then you're moving on to the next thing. And it's kind of rewarding to kind of look in the background because at some point you start to take it for granted. Someone says, wow, I can't believe you have all these routines in place. I can't believe you've accomplished this much. Look at all you've done. But you didn't do all of it in one day. You focused on this one aspect of your life. You got something that was working in place and you moved on to the next thing. But you were able to do all that because you had the privilege of space because you worked for it, right? I mean, you've been putting the time in, you got it down and then you moved on with your life. Yeah, Jonathan, that's interesting. I know you're being facetious there about the 50% and you can just kind of ride off into the sunset, but but it's not all that far off from the truth, right? I mean, clearly you can't save 50% and literally stack piles of money underneath your bed. I mean, that's not going to do it. There, You have to have some background on, okay, invest in an index fund. Maybe that would be enough, right? And we, <laughs> <laughs> and, but not and just we, any index fund. <laughs> we can talk at the margins about that, but yeah, yeah. But <laughs> Too easy, right? But yes, my contention is very similar to yours. If you're saving 50% of your income or more or even close, you can afford mistakes. I think that's what we're trying to say here. Every little iota doesn't matter when you're saving 50%. You can afford to make mistakes like I have with my stupid land speculating that I did 10 plus years ago. and, And I lost a boatload of money on that. Do you think I spent any time thinking about that now? No, I spend none. I could care less because I've moved on from it. I made a terrible mistake. I learned a lesson and I moved on. Do I wish I could go back to my 25-year-old self and redo it in a perfect world? Yeah, but you can't. That's not the way the world works. So I've moved on because you know what? I saved 50 plus percent of my income and everything's going to work out fine for me. So I think that's really important. And and you also mentioned in there, set and forget. And this reminded me, I actually just saw a post in our Facebook group from Jacob And he said, pretty much a pro at this tax thing, getting a $3 refund. Ha ha. I thought that was an awesome post. I'm also not 100% sure if he's being facetious, but if he's not, I agree with him. You gave the government a $3 loan for the entire year. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Isn't that amazing? That's so amazing. Like from a, a CPA's perspective, a tax return where you owe under like 100 or get a $100 refund is about the most perfect tax return you could ever ask for. You're getting all your money throughout the year to invest, and you're not giving the government a tax-free loan for a year or more in some cases. That truly is the perfect tax return. I'm replaying my own words to myself you know, as a teenager, and I'm cringing, but I know that so many other people say this. I wasn't saying this in a vacuum. Oh, I'm going to get a big refund at the end of the year. It's going to be so nice to be able to have that and go get that big purchase, that big splurge. <laughs> Help my younger self understand what's wrong with that sentence. Yeah. And I think this ties into some of the current articles I've seen, you know, about basically tax filing season. Now people are saying that, that refunds are down and, and obviously I don't want to talk about the actual tax law because that's not even important here. It's just understanding tax liability versus tax withholding. What really matters is your tax liability. That is after you file your 1040, that's the total amount of tax you owe. 
That's the important number, okay? The tax withholding, you could withhold all of your money. If you wanted to send 100% of your income to the government to just hold on to for fun, they would gladly do that and they get an interest-free loan. But that doesn't impact what you actually owe in tax. What you actually owe in tax is your tax liability. What you send on your behalf throughout the year is called the withholding. Jonathan, in your case, when you're looking forward to this big refund, let's just say you owed $2,000 in tax, but you sent $5,000 throughout the year in your payroll withholdings. Probably you didn't make estimated payments as a, as a kid, but those are the two different ways you can send tax to the government for withholding is through either payroll or withholding. But in this case, if you sent 5,000 bucks and your liability, what you actually owed was only 2,000, you get a $3,000 refund, which the younger Jonathan was probably doing cartwheels about. But what you did was you handed the government throughout the year, 3,000 extra dollars that you couldn't have to invest or do what you wanted with it. That to me is silly. You're not getting any benefit from them holding it They're just sending you back after you file your return somewhere in March or April, they're sending you back your $3,000. If you're like most normal Americans, you're doing cartwheels that you got this big refund and oh, it's so great, the government sent me money. No, your money is just coming back to you. And this is not common knowledge at all. People, even reporters I've seen, don't seem to understand this. It's when we're talking this current tax law now, They're reporting refunds are down 12, 17%. But embedded in the article, it's usually the tax liability is about the same. So what you actually owe in tax is pretty much plus or minus about the same under the new tax laws, the old, you know, of course, depending on your circumstances. But what's happened is the withholding tables changed. People have been getting their money extra throughout the year when they normally sent it to the government. But what that means is they don't get this big refund at the end of the year because they had that money all throughout the year. So, Brad, basically what you're saying is the way these articles are written, if the headline is refunds are going down, who cares? In fact, you could even make the case that for Jonathan, that's a good thing because that means that I have more money throughout the year. That should be the headline. We want to look at tax liability. We don't really care about refund because if you're optimizing your life, you want your money working for you now. If the headline were people are paying more in taxes each year. That's an accurate headline. But to say that refunds go down, we know this isn't the case, but we could make the case. Well, maybe as a population, we're just getting more intelligent about taxes and we're doing a better job optimizing them. So we get to keep our paycheck. That could be one case. I think what you're saying is probably the more accurate version, which is that the withholding tables have changed slightly, but that is allowing more people to have more of their money up front. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's just lack of knowledge of how this liability versus withholding works. That's just the crucial point. And, and what you and I try to do is educate people, right? And if we have this information, while it might be quote unquote obvious to me, Brad, the CPA, who's been doing this for 20 years, this is not common knowledge. But once you understand it, it really is pretty easy. So yeah, Jonathan, that's an interesting take that by these refunds going down, it's actually probably getting it closer to where it should be. It seems like it's in proportion to the size of our podcast audience. Brad, we're having an impact. (laughs) (laughs) Could be, could be. Just close, very, very close. No, but let's (laughs) talk about the strategy wise. What I was doing after I learned more about this and understood this, because it's one thing to understand this, the second half of this, what do you do about it? 
once you become familiar with this, this is when you actually start looking at your taxes, your projected tax burden ahead of time. If you're in the fortunate position of having a relatively, well, I guess it's fortunate depending on your perspective, but the fortunate position of knowing what your income is going to be each year. So maybe this is your second year of a W-2 job, you know your projected paycheck and you're projecting that forward. So at the end of the year, I expect to make this. You can plug that income into a tax calculator and very quickly and easily you can find out your anticipated federal taxes that are owed. Then what you can do is you can go look at your current or last paycheck and see your taxes that have been withheld up to this particular point in time. And then you can compare what you know you're going to owe at the end of the year with how much has been drawn out. And then the next thing is how many pay periods do you have left? And then what you can do is you can take the difference between those two, divide it by the number of pay periods that you have left, and then that will give you how much you should be sending the government. If you're trying to do what Jacob did and get your tax burden really, really low, you can dial it in to get below that CPA approval threshold of less than $100. So if you know you're going to owe an additional 6000 and you've got six pay periods left over the remainder of the year, you need to send the government an additional you know, $1,000 a month or so. In that case, if you know that you're only sending them $500 a month. You, there's actually a place on your W-4, which is basically your withholding calculator. Your employer or HR department will have this where you can opt to send them an additional amount. It's very easy to dial in and get it within that $100 margin that Brad was just describing. Conversely, if you do that same equation, it turns out you're sending the government too much. Then what you're actually able to do is go to your W-4 again, you know, with your HR department. And then on your W-4, you can actually make a change to it. And specifically, I think it's line five where it says the total number of allowances you're claiming So just depending on what that is, you can manipulate that number. And typically, if you want to keep more in your paycheck, because it turns out you're sending the government too much, you can move that number up. So if you're claiming a three, you could claim a four or a five. Don't go crazy with this. Keep it kind of close. This is an experiment, right, to get it as close to the actual owed amount as possible. Ultimately, we're talking about this cool game that's going to allow us to get inside that $100 mark. And it's kind of that balance between getting it very close with five and then perfecting it on line six, the additional amount you want withheld from each paycheck. All of this is on your W-4 form and all of this can be can be found just by either by talking with your HR department or probably your company, many companies and corporations will actually have all of this available online. I know mine did and you could you know change it on a weekly or biweekly basis. So the best part of this is if you get this dialed in and it's working, now you have this uh, kind of badge of honor at tax time next year, I guess at this particular point, you can tell us how you did. We'll report that back out and we'll drive those articles even lower. <laughs> 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 oh, that's funny, Jonathan. And and I so I use this arbitrary one hundred dollars thing, but please don't get too caught up on that, everybody. Don't spend a ton of extra hours trying to get it within a hundred bucks. You be I mean if you're within a you, cup but, you'd be cooler if you did. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cooler. But yeah, if you're within a couple hundred bucks either way, that's a successful tax return in my opinion. And Brad, to your larger point. This is like the aggregation of marginal gains, but the bulletproof aspect is how can we help you get to that 50% savings rate, earn more, spend less, optimize the difference. It's, it's all right there. And while I love the fact that the small stuff doesn't matter as much, once you figure out that 50% savings rate, it doesn't mean that we are just going to be stupid about stuff. And we're going to, and we always want to avoid big financial mistakes. You know, that's kind of like that disclaimer behind this entire thing. Yeah. And what's funny, I didn't really tell you about this, but I almost made a colossal financial mistake to the tune of 
basically about $20,000 in the last like two weeks. <laughs> yeah. That's not a rounding error. You know, it's funny. I, we talked about solar panels in the last month or so where uh, we had Brian Feraldi on a couple months back and it sounded fascinating. Laura and I looked into it and we signed a contract. Clearly, I'm so enthused about the solar panels. I still think that's phenomenal. But it's interesting. I listened to our roundup, one of our last two roundups. And in talking, I said something just kind of in passing about, oh, I've got to get in touch with Geico. And I realized, actually, I misspoke. I don't have Geico for my my homeowner's insurance. I have Mutual Assurance of Virginia, which we've talked about in the past, where this is a slightly different homeowner's insurance. So it's not through one of these, these major nationwide companies. It's a mutual assurance here in the state of Virginia. And it's actually, they have these very stringent rules. So they're able to keep the cost down by not taking every house basically. And they don't let you have like a trampoline last I checked. And when I moved in, we had to get different like ice maker lines with braided stainless steel and take down tree limbs and all this other stuff. So they're really good about this. But Jonathan, what I didn't realize, and I had this horrible pit in my stomach for a while that I didn't get in touch with mutual assurance before I signed the contract for the solar panels and more importantly, paid for half of this thing. I had done that. I paid for half of it, signed a contract, and then realized belatedly, oh, wow, mutual assurance might throw me off of the policy. And any savings that I was going to get from the solar panels would essentially be gone, gone because of my additional burden of homeowner's insurance going through a traditional company. Okay. So I guess we have to find out what happens. So I personally have mutual assurance as well. And I guess for context, so people can understand the amount of money that you're saving. I think historically I was paying like, oh gosh, somewhere in the vicinity of $1,200 to $1,500 a year from ins- for homeowner's insurance, something along those lines. And then with mutual assurance, basically I paid somewhere around $1,000 to $1,200 that first year, which is kind of like a buy-in amount. But then I just got my renewal and going forward, my homeowner's insurance is like $400 a year or something it's yeah. something right around there. So it's absurd. I'm saving probably somewhere right around $800 up to $1,000 a year by going with mutual assurance. You don't want to lose that savings. I guess that's kind no, of that no. was the guiding light for me. So how did it go? You call them, you've already paid 10 grand for solar panels and you say, "Oh, by the way." <laughs> yeah, oh, by the way. So, yeah, I sent this email to my contact there and he wrote me back luckily within 30 minutes. I was I was nervous the whole time and he said, you are in luck. We just changed the rules. Jonathan, get this. January 2019. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what? I mean I'm, I'm, I can't even get through it without laughing because of just how lucky I am. I mean, I probably signed the contract in January of 2019. That's how close this was. I'm just, I was stupid and I didn't do my due diligence and I just got really, really lucky because yeah, if this was a thousand dollar Delta between them and a traditional homeowner's insurance for you, my house is a little bit bigger, probably would have been a larger Delta. So I would have lost well more than half of the benefit of the solar panels. So while it wouldn't have been a $20,000 loss, it probably would have been probably 10 to $12,000 of the 20K that I'm spending on solar panels would have essentially been lost because I just was stupid and didn't send an email before I signed a contract and sent all this money off. So this is a lesson. I mean, I got really wrapped up in the excitement of this and I just didn't think at the end of the day, I did get lucky, but man, not a smart move at all. But to be clear, you're still getting solar panels. 
<laughs> I'm still getting solar panels. Everything worked out great. And uh, yes, very lucky, but all's well in the world. Awesome, man. That's hey, I'm glad it worked out for you. And to our audience, for those of you, every once in a while, we have a little bit of information. For those of you in Virginia, uh, and in particular, I guess in the Richmond area, Brad, you'll have to tell me if they go farther than that. But they, uh, this company is fantastic. We'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, it's unbelievable how much savings they offer. It's kind of tough. I mean, you're actually asking them to approve you. And just because you have a nice house does not necessarily mean that you will be approved. They only do so many in so many neighborhoods. You have to have a fire hydrant within a certain number of yards. As Brad said, you have to make certain accommodations. You can't have a trampoline. I'm sure there's some dog limitations as well. All sorts of like little things that you wouldn't see. But like this company has been around since the 1700s, quite literally 1700s, because their payout rate is so low because, you know, they do this front end check you're able to get this insurance at just a small fraction of the cost. So it's a really cool deal. And yeah, you should definitely check them out. Brad, let's go back and talk about this idea of escape and let's tie that to Wendy's story, how she was able to create this fully funded lifestyle change for herself. Kind of let's extract some of the principles and see what value there will be for other people in our audience that maybe find themselves in a similar situation. They went all in on this hand, whether it's pharmacy or law practice or something that required an extended amount of schooling and maybe eight to 10 years into their practice, they are burnt out and they're not at financial independence and they're trying to figure out how to escape that choice and move towards something else. I want to start by saying that I do not think that a choice that you make in your teens should be a trap that holds you all the way until the age of 60, all the way until the age of 65, until you are allowed to retire. I love the idea that you can make a choice and work towards something. And if you are in a toxic work environment, you have options to escape. And Wendy did this. And I think there's going to be some actionable content here that we can extract for our audience. Yeah, Jonathan, one of the big things that I took away from Wendy's story was just getting an understanding of A, that this is possible and B, where you are financially. Wendy and Kurt had good incomes. This was a two income family. They made a nice salary and their savings rate was essentially negligible. They said it was under 5% at the beginning. And when he said, I needed to quote, take an honest assessment of where we were, we were making really great money, but had nothing to show for it. So first I really needed to see where the money was going. And I mean, she said they were spending close to $3,000 in food. They were able to cut Jonathan ultimately $6,000 a month from their budget just by being intentional. She said, how can we not decrease the quality of our life at the same time, do it as inexpensively as possible? And I think this is a crucial part. And like what I like to focus on with Phi is I don't ever think that I'm depriving myself of anything. I can't think of an instance where I'm like, oh, my life stinks because I'm depriving myself because I'm saving money. I look at it the opposite. Like this is a fun game to me of how can I live the same life or a better life than I used to be living, or I don't know, just as regular, the same life as regular people down the block for me, right? But do it in an optimized manner where I'm still saving a boatload of money. To me, that makes this even more fun. It doesn't take away, like there's no deprivation. It's, wow, I get to live the same life, plus I get to save all this money and ultimately become wealthy over time. Like that is a huge benefit to me. 
Yeah. And I think what Wendy did and highlighted for me is kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's kind of like, let's focus on this part and then let's work on the next thing. Because, you know, there's this equation, what you earn minus what you spend is equal to the difference or the gap. So in Wendy's case, she is, she has earnings, but that's going to disappear. At least part of her income is going to disappear. So we're going to first focus on what we can cut. We're going to focus on optimizing our life ruthlessly for value. You know, spend money lavishly on the things that you want to spend money on and bring value to your life. On everything else, cut it ruthlessly. That's what she did. And she was able to clean up $6,000. And with her food budget, she pushed the food budget to maybe the edge of what might be considered deprivation. And then she found that balance point for her life. It's hard to know, you know, what actually makes you feel deprived if you don't at least flirt with the edge a little bit and then come back. That allows you to orient yourself around value. It helped her tremendously that she was able to find a community of other people that were doing this. So she didn't feel like the crazy person, you know, when you can normalize this, when this becomes what you do, it becomes fun. And then in her place, like there's a set it and forget it mentality. Okay. I have optimized the food budget. What else can I cut? I go through my line items and I cut those successfully. Everything that I do, you know, at some point now she's looking at their mortgage and looking at renting. She's optimizing these different line items and then she's moving on to the next thing. And then now she comes back because it doesn't all happen at the same time, right? When you get that in place, you come back and in her case, now she's focusing back on the income. Well, how can I side hustle and make up the, the gap between what I was making before? What stands out to me is life is a moving picture, right? It's not a snapshot. Facebook is a snapshot. Your latest net worth statement is a snapshot, but you need to look, realize that you should be moving towards something. You should be moving towards progress. And what you're making right now doesn't have to be what you're going to be making a year from now, two years from now, et cetera. But what you can do right now, in her case, she could crush the expenses that then allowed them to make a choice that's going to put them in a position for her to start rebuilding the income game. And even in the meantime, before they figured out the income side of the equation, because she had so ruthlessly cut the expenses, the numbers still worked. Their stopgap approach is, when Kurt is 55 years old, they will then now be able to have the pension. And just based on that, plus what they have will be enough for them to have this lifestyle that's prioritized around who they value the most, their children. They want to have a life of freedom that involves their kids. Yeah. And Jonathan, you talked about a moving picture. Wendy had this law practice and it was in Phoenix and they lived in California. She tried to figure out how can I make this thing become passive? Is that even possible? She was a criminal defense attorney, which she said led her to this burnout. And I guess she needed to be there on the ground, but she moved to making it more appellate work that she could do actually remotely and only go into court maybe a couple times a month at most. Even that she did for as long as she possibly could, but she said the burnout was still there. She tried to offload some other tasks to different lawyers. So she tried. This was a moving picture. She really tried because who wants to give up a thriving law practice if you don't have to? So she investigated and she figured out that it didn't work for her. That doesn't mean that someone else in a similar predicament wouldn't be able to keep that law practice open. But for her, this moving picture was this is just not going to work for me. So what did she do? She got this real estate license. She said, I think the number she quoted was like $40,000 a year. She made in her first year or two at this. And you have to imagine it's onward and upward from there. And again, moving picture, right? Curtis's income went up when they moved to California and their health insurance costs went down and they were able to cut $6,000 from their budget. So Wendy didn't need the, what we assume to be a six figure law practice job based on the facts on the ground there. And they were able to take their savings rate from a negligible, I don't know, a sub 5% 
to, I think she said 38%. So this is a holistic picture. It's not just, okay, we make this amount of money and we need to replicate it come hell or high water to the exact dollar when we move. It's not like that. They looked at the circumstances and said, all right, things are changing. What do we have to do to make the best life for ourselves? And not to mention, they were able to juice their savings rate all the way up to 38%. And I imagine as Wendy makes more from this real estate, that percentage is going to go considerably up from there. I like looking at it as a picture as opposed to just, okay, this is what I have to replicate and I'm a failure if I don't, right? Like that's silly to me. It's, it's a larger financial picture. And I think, Brad, it's why an important part of the the conversations that we try to cover in the future are the, this idea of escape. You know, there are many people that have hit a rut in their current career. They're stuck. And the idea of doing this for another 20 or 30 years causes <laughs> mind-numbing agony. And, and so for these individuals, you know, that first play is, is there a way that we can salvage, you know, our current job by restructuring it, reordering it, reprioritizing it, focusing on the things that maybe initially lit us up and finding a way to offload the things that burn us out as a way of saving your job. But if that's not tenable, there are so many people that picked another lane. I mean, I'm one of them. I'm in a different lane now. I, I was all in on pharmacy. I am no longer doing pharmacy. In her case, she's doing real estate. She left a law degree and now she's doing real estate. In other people's cases, maybe they pursue another career, career path or entrepreneurship. There's there's examples of this and I don't have them all for you, but fortunately we have a platform and a show that allows us to find the other choices that people were making. This isn't the talk you out of pharmacy program or the talk you out of law program. What this is, is just trying to give you enough tools and examples of people that have made a slightly different choice and got a different result. Because if you get enough of those, if you get a portfolio of those, it will change your future. It might even change your life. So with that in mind, I thought, Brad, we could take the second half of this episode and we could actually highlight a story from someone in our community. And this is Karen, who we've gotten to know in the last several months. She has an amazing story about an escape route that she planned for herself. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So help us set the stage here. What was your first job? Oh, so my first job was when I was 14. I got a job as a daycare assistant. After that, I just kept working different jobs. I always wanted to have a little bit of pocket money. My parents didn't have a lot of money. So if I wanted a new pair of shoes or the latest CD, I had to buy it. So I signed up at Youth Employment and I worked so many different jobs. It was kind of like a temp agency for kids. And I did dental assisting. I did secretarial jobs. I did all kinds of things. So I got a little taste of everything, retail, restaurants, things like that. Then I got married and had kids and was a stay-at-home mom. So Karen, youth employment, does that still exist? You know, I'm not sure. I wish it did because it was a great opportunity to kind of test my skills and see what kind of things I enjoyed doing and the things that I did not definitely did not enjoy doing. So I, I knew what to avoid career-wise. So you're a stay-at-home mom in the, help me set the time frame for this. You know, what, where are we on the uh, Friends 1990s to 2019? Where, where are we at? Yes, 94, I got married and I had my first kid. That's when I decided to be a stay-at-home mom. I couldn't uh, bear the thought of leaving her, so I was a stay-at-home mom. Okay, and this is actually very interesting because this is kind of that same drive that maybe, you know, Wendy was feeling in this past week's episode. She was looking for a way to spend more time with her family. You know, as you were kind of looking around you, I know that you actually ended up pursuing some side hustles. And I'm curious, how did that come to be? 
Yeah. So I definitely do enjoy working and I love getting a paycheck and being a stay-at-home mom, the pay's not so great. So I worked a couple of odd jobs part-time and then in 99, I got a computer and one of my friends had introduced me to all the great deals she was finding online shopping. Um, back in 99, it was all new. So online stores had coupons for like 20 off 20 or more. So basically you'd pay $5 for shipping to get 20 bucks worth of diapers or whatever you needed. And I was totally on board. So shopping, finding good deals. And my friends were asking me how I was getting all these great bargains. And I started sharing coupons and deals via email. Those friends shared those emails with their extended friends. And eventually I had a contact list of like 50 people that I didn't know. And I decided <laughs> instead of just, you know, forwarding around these emails and answering 100 emails, I would just create a website. And I had no website training. You would just create a website in 1999? Like, I know what it's like to create a website now, and it's not dif it's not super difficult. But in 1999, that is a different beast altogether. Yeah, there weren't as many tools back in 99, for sure. There was a site called Homestead, and it was basically a drop and drag kind of technology where you could build a website by dropping and dragging different features. And so that's how my first website was built. It was built on Homestead with drop and drag. The unfortunate thing with drop and drag technology is that it doesn't render the same on all browsers. So if you were using the AOL browser or if you were on web TV, this is obviously very dated <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it looked totally different. Most so popular images, browser of 1999. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there could be text overlapping images and it was just a mess. So I decided to step it up and I learned HTML code. So Karen, I just wanted to ask about the coupons. You said a friend kind of was doing this and taught you, but I'm assuming at this point, you're just trying to save money for yourself, right? Like at the outset of this, there's no business structure here at all, right? Like, or, or profit incentive other than just, Hey, I need to buy these things for less money. Am I, am I on the ball there? Absolutely. Yeah. I was just shopping and saving money and then sharing my tips with people so they could also save money. There was no business involved at all. It was just kind of a hobby. So you have 50 people on a list. I'm assuming some of these people you've never heard of before. At what point did they start sharing it with their friends and the list just start growing like beyond what you could have imagined? It happened really quickly, actually. You know, back in 99, there weren't a lot of shopping and deal sites out there and coupon sites, things like that. There was no Retail Me Not back in 99. So to get these coupons, you had to either know these stores and be on their lists or see a banner ad or something like that. It wasn't as easy to find coupons and deals back then. And I got my computer in July of 99 and I started my site in November of 99. That's how quickly it happened. I wanted to land on the fact that you, you made this statement and then I decided to learn HTML. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to like, that's not in a vacuum because you gave us these list of jobs that you had performed from dental assistant to youth employment. You didn't go to computer school. And again, this is not 2019. This is 1999. The resource YouTube is not as prolific as it is today. What did that mean for you? How did you go about learning HTML? Okay, so there was a website that taught kids how to do HTML, and that's where I started because there were a lot of advanced programming websites that it was basically a foreign language to me. I could not understand it. So I found a website that was full of tutorials on how to HTML code for kids, and that's where I started. Stay-at-home mom talent stacker. That is incredible. <laughs> and so where does the business model come from? Because I, I happen to know where you are now. 
and you have built something really, really incredible. And I'm trying so hard not to spoil it for our audience because I think they're going to be as blown away as I was. As you started to go from a list that you're solving a problem, right? We, we've talked about side hustles. We've talked about the intersection method. You're solving a problem in your own life. You're sharing it with other people. They're getting value from it. You're talent stacking. You're adding in all these components that allow you to build a website in a time where really they're just nobody else was doing this. You were putting it together. At what point did you realize that there was a business model here? Uh, so, so this is kind of funny. I was shopping on Amazon and I don't know, I scrolled to the bottom of the page and I saw a link called associates program. And so I clicked on that to see what that was all about. And I discovered that you could actually earn a commission by referring people to a store. And if they made a purchase, the store would give you a commission. I thought, holy cow, I'm already doing that. You know, I'm not asking people to buy something so I can make a buck. I'm already, you know, giving out recommendations of ways to save money. And if they buy it, great. If it helps them, that's awesome. And if I can get a commission for it, that's going to help me pay some of my bills. And that is affiliate marketing at its core. Exactly. So Karen, just to be clear here, I always say I'm just, when I'm describing myself, I'm just a regular suburban dad. People would be really surprised at like just how average and ordinary my life is, honestly. Like I'm sitting here in a spare bedroom talking into a microphone on a $200 laptop. There's nothing crazy going on here. You're a stay-at-home mom at this point and you found this new skill of, okay, I can save people money. And then you have this little list and then you're learning HTML and affiliate marketing. But at its core, you're a stay-at-home mom there trying to learn this talent stack, right? Absolutely. And by that time, I had three kids, a dog. <laughs> I was room mom for the two kids that were old enough to be in school. I worked as the PTA treasurer's assistant and things like that, uh, fundraising and things like that. I was in charge of that. I just did the whole mom thing. And when the kids were napping or at school, I did the business thing. So Karen, obviously you've built something amazing here and, and we're not going to keep this hidden for long here because I want to talk about your business specifically. But I mean, you were a stay-at-home mom, you created a blog. And I think a lot of people in our audience are just kind of like, oh, they're a blogger. They must make a lot of money. But I know in my experience, at least 99 plus percent of people who have blogs make essentially nothing or, or close to nothing, right? So this is usually a labor of love for people. But that said, obviously, if you can make money, you'd like to. Clearly, that was something that worked well for you, right? You had a mission of helping people save money. But also, if you can make money without it being a negative for anybody, a win-win ultimately, then why wouldn't you do that? And, and I'm curious if you can pass along to the audience who really knows nothing about website building or affiliate marketing or any of this stuff, what were the couple of things that really stood out for you on your learning journey? Because that's what this was. This was a personal learning journey of yours for two decades. If you could pass those along to the audience and say, hey guys, if you were going to do something like this, here are the couple of things that helped me and I think could work for you. Absolutely. So number one would be create content that people find valuable because there are so many blogs out there these days. I had the advantage of starting in 99 when the market wasn't so saturated. And if people were looking for deals, then they didn't have that many places to go. So I would say number one, create content people are looking forward to reading. And then when you tie in your affiliate marketing, make sure that the stuff that you're promoting is stuff that ties into your content. So you never want to just put up a banner and think that you're going to be making money off of that because you won't. Um, if you can tie a product or a service into the content that you're creating, 
then you're going to have a lot more success. Number two, get an email list going because that's going to help people to come back to your site. Um, a lot of times people will just you know come by and they won't come back. But if you can get them on your email list, then you can share your latest articles and things like that that will get them coming back and visiting you again. So number three, I think the best book that I ever read was How to Win Customers and Keep Them for Life. It's an amazing book about having great relationships with your customers and having them view you as a source. And it's amazing. Um, basically, you treat your customers how you'd want to be treated. You know, never sell something that you wouldn't buy yourself. Never recommend a service that you wouldn't want your mom signing up for. Things like that. Uh, it's taking care of your customers like they're a friend or a part of your family. That is so crucial. I think that intellectual honesty is how I've always referred to it as keeping care of people as if they were your friends. People can sniff when you're being disingenuous, right? Like they just know it. There's that inauthenticity and it just shines through and people are just trying to make money. But also conversely, people know when you're just trying to be a good person and provide benefit. And I, I've found that that's helped me dramatically in my businesses. It's cool to hear you say that as well. So Karen, let's go ahead and just pull the curtain back here. Let's talk about your business the way it is now, because, you know, from my understanding of your business model, it looks like you are probably making more doing this talent stacking hobby that started with you saying, I'm willing to learn HTML than you ever could have if you had found the one perfect day job. And that's just, that's unbelievable to me. Tell us about what your business model actually looks like today. Yeah. So my website is mybargainbuddy.com. Basically, I just hunt for deals. I post about a dozen, two dozen different deals or coupons a day. It's great because I can also reach out to stores and ask them for a special coupon for my readers. So the deal hunting has gotten easier now that I have a, a bigger following. And so back in 1999, when it first started, you had a, a cohort of 50 people. Uh, how many people are on your email list now? So right now I have about 50,000 email subscribers. Wow. And, and let me ask you this. Do you get any feedback from them about, you know, whether or not these different bargains that you're hunting down and you're finding for them on a regular basis, do you get feedback on, you know, whether or not this is adding value to their life? I do. And actually that's a really great motivator for me because sometimes I do kind of get tired of sitting in front of a computer screen and looking for deals. But when I get an email saying that, Hey, you helped me stay on budget for Christmas this year, or my kid got a new train set that he's been wanting and we didn't think we could afford it. It really makes it worth it for me. It's very rewarding. Awesome. And then the other half of relationships are the relationships that you're cultivating essentially with the advertisers. And the only reason I mentioned this is because you have cultivated relationships with many different service providers over the past 20 years. And this is a pain point for individuals that are starting to look into affiliate marketing and are starting to cultivate something other than just a link to Amazon, right? The bar to get on to the bar to link to a product on Amazon is very, very low. You need to have a pulse. But as soon as you <laughs> find another product that's not on Amazon that you believe is would be a value for your specific community, then it changes a little bit. And and part of that is knowing how to reach out to someone and I would imagine when you have a list of, you know, 50,000 people, that becomes much easier. But when you're starting out, you know, the first week, the first month, the first year, I'm curious, maybe you could give our audience some actionable uh, takeaways on what you piece together. Right. So when you join an affiliate program, you'll be provided with the email address of the person that manages that affiliate program. I highly suggest reaching out and starting a dialogue. 
Tell them about your blog and the content you're writing. Tell them about how you think their product or service ties into that content and and see what they'll do for you. You know, perhaps they'll give you an increased commission for exposure or perhaps they'll give you a coupon or an extended free trial for your users. It's great just to uh, have some dialogue so that you guys can both determine, you know, what works best for your blog, your readers. Now, why would an advertiser be willing to pay just an individual an increased commission or provide an additional incentive that maybe they wouldn't just offer on their own page? Why is that valuable for the advertiser to offer that? A lot of times it brings them new customers. If your content ties into what it is they're selling, they really want to reach your audience. And so they'll bend over backwards to get your readers in front of their product or their service. So it has to do with the quality of the lead. So, cause I guess my point is they could just put an ad anywhere, but the problem is the problem with that is kind of that drop off or that attrition rate, because it's not a good match. If you're thinking about serving your audience first and you're picking only products and services that tie directly to the content that you're producing, it's going to be a much more high quality lead. Is that, is that close? Exactly. And it's worth it on that, on the advertiser's part to then either increase your commission or in some way give the audience some sort of additional discount if they use your link, because again, the quality of those leads is so high. And it's a no risk proposition for them too, because they're only paying for performance. So they're only going to pay you as an affiliate if they have a sale or a sign up. So they can offer you, you know, 100% commission. If it doesn't do anything, if you don't drive any sales or leads, they're not out any money. Yeah, that's really interesting. Karen, I'm curious, are there any instances where you've developed relationships with account representatives that have gone to bat for you or helped you find other relationships? I know we had uh, Grant Sabatier on recently, and he described how he dealt with corporate recruiters and he basically became friends with them so that they would think of him when there was a job opening or something that might be good for him or benefit him. I'm curious, has your relationship building extended to that? Absolutely. I actually attend conferences for affiliate marketing. So a lot of the program managers have become friends over the years and they they know my audience. And so if they're managing a program where they think there's a good fit, they'll reach out to me directly. The other question that I have is, let's say that you have this content that's very niche. You can tell that there's a service that would absolutely be wonderful for your community, for your audience, but they don't currently have an affiliate program. Is that a binary? You just, you know, oh, they don't have it. We can't do anything with it. Or is there a way to actually create or work with the company to create an affiliate program? Have you ever seen that work before? Yeah. So there are actually some affiliate programs that aren't publicized. And if you know somebody who works there, you can get into, you know, the program that they're running behind the scenes. A lot of times what you might want to do is go to LinkedIn and connect to somebody who works in their business development or in their marketing department and start a conversation. See if they'd be willing to partner with you for sales or leads. You know, what's so interesting about this is people come at this from different directions. You know, in your case, you found this long before you really found the concept of financial independence. And our first email, what really stood out to me is you said, wow, I found you guys and I realized it's time to give up the earn and burn mentality. Tell us a little bit more about that. I was always uh, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, I earn a great income. I can buy whatever I'd like. I go to the grocery store. I don't have to have a list. I don't really have to think about what I'm throwing in the cart. But longevity-wise, it's not a good plan. I mean, my worst financial mistake was living within my means, which sounds really silly. You know, all these years, I should have been living beneath my means, and I would have been so much further ahead, but it's never too late. 
Oh my goodness. And when you found this and you decided, you know what, I got to make a change. What was your first step? My first step was taking my SEP out of my bank and putting it in Vanguard. How did you find the financial independence community? So I was listening to Freakonomics. I scrolled through other financial podcasts and I found yours. Welcome. (laughs) We're glad you're here. And I personally learned so much from you in this regards. And it's cool that like we were talking about set and forget earlier. You figure out one piece and you move on to the next. And some people start with the, the, the finance game. They start with the frugality and the optimization, and they then are then focusing on the income side of things, which is, which is awesome. It's totally a good way to do it. Other people start with the income and then still they're just living within their means. I love this quote. It's the worst financial mistake I ever made, but you do have the luxury then of then dialing in on these other two aspects, the optimization and the intentional spending You found the income side of thing. And now because of the shovel you have, you're able to make incredible strides with regards to your other goals. And I'm so grateful for you taking a few minutes and joining us on the show for people that are listening to this, that want to find out more about the deals that you're hunting down on a weekly basis, or just connect with you. What is the best way to find out more about what you're doing? Um, So go to my site, mybargainbuddy.com, and there is a contact page that you can reach me. Karen, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. You bet. Brad, what I loved about Karen's story is how she crushed the income side of the game. She crushed the talent stacking. She's circling back now and saying, wow, I need to lock down the the intentionality and, the, and realize that I have this working right now, but this isn't guaranteed forever. And I need to make sure that, I, that we're taken care of. I, you, earn and burn is not a winning strategy long-term. And it really helps when you realize that there are other people doing this. And regardless of whether or not you're just taking it in vicariously through the podcast or you find the community, realizing that there are other people on this path is a really big deal. We try to each week actually highlight the fact that this community is growing and it's growing rapidly. And we do that by talking about our local groups. And in this case, there's actually at least two new local groups this week. There's a new one in Rockford, Illinois and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Buffalo just organized their first meetup for March 24th. And Jason just organized a meetup for the Tampa group. I mean, it looks like there were over 20 people there. So, you know, this idea of getting together with your community, it's really spreading. And we are seeing meetups happening quite literally all over the country. And it's not a stretch to say all over the world. It's really, really cool. And I can't wait to be able to highlight more of these events as they happen. If you're hearing this and you're saying, you know, I really would love to get a local community going in my own area. First of all, just go to chooseify.com slash local. Make sure there isn't one there already and then just get involved. And two, if there isn't one there, we would love to help you set one up. Just send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know what area of the country you would like to see one started in, and we can help set that up for you. And let's just see this thing grow together. All right, Brad, unfortunately, that's going to bring this episode to a close. Now, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. And there's three books that we offer. The first is J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. The second is Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future. And the third book from Vincent Puglisi, Freelance to Freedom. If you want a chance to win a copy of one of these books, all you need to do is just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Follow the instructions there. Leave us a short written review and then send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get, and we announce the winner on the Friday Roundup. Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, we have one winner today, and the winner is Christy. Christy said, yes, I found my tribe. My husband and I have always lived a financially intentional life, but have always felt alone in the crowd. It was so great to discover Chooseify and a tribe of like-minded people, and the amount of optimization that I've been able to put into action as a result of listening, has been so exciting. 
Can't wait for the next episode. Thanks, Brad and Jonathan. All right, my friends. If this was the first time that you have listened to an episode of Choose FI this week, go listen to episode 100. That is a fantastic starting place to help you find out more about the content that we've been producing over the last two years. The fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.